0: The defeat of Germany in World War II, as I continue my recent fixation on World War II, um, it would not have happened without the alliance of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union. On the eastern front of the war, no battle was more important than the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, Stalingrad is a city in Russia, sort of towards the south. And Stalingrad eventually, at its end, became the most costly or deadly war uh, battle in the whole war. And many historians say that it's the bloodiest battle in the history of wars. With an estimated 1.8 million casualties. 1.8 million casualties. That's like almost saying the whole Casey metro area was killed in war, in just one battle. The Russian commanders in that battle realized that if they lost Stalingrad, that this changes almost everything. Their chance of losing the entire war increased, multiplied greatly. The Russian troops and civilians in Stalingrad were growing weak, and they were growing weary from this battle. Uh, it's, it's often uh, said that this battle was won in the trenches. It's um, uh, it called the Rats, Matt, you probably know. Rat and Krieg or something like that? No? Okay. It, it, the, the Germans would call it a battle like with rats because it was in the city and the Germans didn't like battling in the city. They liked being far from the city and using their superior weaponry in order to attack from afar, to minimize casualties. It was a bloody, dirty war. And the Russians were growing weary from this. As the prospect of victory was looking bleak, Troikov, one of the commanders, realized that his Soviet Union was panicking, that they were pessimistic, and that they were discouraged. That's not a recipe for success. Pessimism, discouragement, and panicking. And so... As he was reflecting on his role in the war when he was called up from China in order to go to this battle, this is in his own words uh, his understanding of the soldiers at the time. He says that our units were tired. There were many whining pessimists in the army. I threw these panicky people out of the army right away and set to work. I told our men we could not retreat so Troikov comes in and he in a sense encourages strengthens his army one commander at the time says or one Soviet lieutenant says this about this time he says that uh, his commander said, pull yourself back together. Get ready to fight. And even if you're half dead, if you've got only one good arm, use it to shoot the enemy. Deal with that first one coming on the attack. Just deal with that first one. Your first shot will encourage your comrades. So much of war is encouraging the soldiers to be strengthened, to be encouraged, and stand their ground, to stand firm. And We can see this even now as we watch the events in Ukraine unfold. As the world watches, there's this Ukrainian hero emerging on the world stage, President Vladimir Zelensky. As the news unfolds hour by hour, we see that the people of Ukraine are encouraged to stand their ground in Kiev and fight, fight in the cities. Men age 18 to 60 are not even allowed to leave Ukraine. If they go to the border, they're given a rifle and told to turn around to fight. Because the future of the country is dependent upon all of them collectively coming together and fighting. Our president, President Biden, even offered Zelensky uh, to be evacuated. He said, if you need to be evacuated, we can help you. And Zelensky said to Biden, I need ammunition, not a ride. I'm not leaving. I'm standing firm. His heroism, his encouragement to stand firm amidst the unjust Russian attack has been the key unforeseen weapon of this war thus far. Russia might have understood uh, that they had a superior military, that they had more soldiers, but they underestimated the Ukrainian heart, and particularly the Ukrainian heart of its leader, President Zelensky. What application we have today for our text. As we are closing out our study in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has told the church at Ephesus to what? To stand firm against their enemy, the devil. The devil is scheming. The devil is attacking. The devil is looking to take you down. The weapon of the warfare for the Christian is the gospel itself, which is unleashed through prayer, as we saw last week. But what about you, Christian? Are you in need of encouragement this morning? Are you at all disheartened in this world? Do you find yourself a bit sluggish in the faith? Well, God wants you to be encouraged. And the book of Ephesians aims to offer disheartened Christians encouragement. This is our last sermon in the book of Ephesians. And if we could zoom out and and, and say what is The Apostle Paul teaching the church at Ephesus and indeed our church. What is the Holy Spirit teaching us through Ephesus? I I think it would be this. That God is displaying His glory in the cosmos as the church stands firm on the gospel of Christ. God is displaying His glory in the cosmos. in In the worlds unseen, in our world here. As the church stands firm, or perseveres, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul wants the church to stand firm. And we see at the end of the letter, he wants them to feel encouraged by the gospel. That's the aim of the the gospel. Is the point of Ephesians, is it to explain the mystery of the gospel? Well, that would fall short of his main point. His main point is that you'd be encouraged. and The way he gets there is by unfolding, explaining the mystery of the gospel. And we see at this very end in these last four verses that he's trying to encourage the people in two ways. And that's, our, that's our, the point of our sermon today. Or the two points of our sermon is that we stand firm through encouragement from friends... First uh, verses twenty one and twenty two, and then we stand firm through the gospel itself. Stand firm, encourage to stand firm through friends. Point one, verses twenty one and twenty two. Point two, encouragement to stand firm on the gosp- through the gospel itself. Verses twenty three and twenty four. Let me read the text found on uh, found on page nine hundred. What is it, church? 979, 979, Ephesians 6. 979, page 979, Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 24. Katie, I'm wondering if, Lachlan, can you get my water? See it? Lachlan, can you bring it up to me? Thanks, buddy. Ephesians 6, 21 to 24. Incorruptible. Heavenly Father, we pray that our church would be encouraged through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be better gospelly friends and that we would more firmly stand on the gospel, that we might stand firm and persevere, remembering that Christ has won the victory for us. Help us on now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing firm through the encouragement from friends. In verse 21, Paul reveals that he wants to be known. He wants them to know the state of his heart. And he also says, "I I want you to know what I've been up to. What I am doing. So he's saying, I need you to know how I am. And I want you to know how I'm doing. We know from chapter 6, verse 20, that Paul is an ambassador. Yet, he's an ambassador in what? In chains. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. In 4, 1, he says that he's a prisoner for the Lord. So his chains are there because of his devotion and his ministry, his devotion to Jesus, and then ministering on behalf of the Lord. So there's a good reason to wonder, hey, how is Paul doing? He's in prison. Is he miserable? Is he he just slugging it out? Is he growing lazy? Well, apparently, he's standing firm even while in prison for proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. But he wants them to know how he is. And he's sending Tychicus as a messenger to tell the church at Ephesus and I think other churches in the surrounding area to, for Tychicus to give a report. Now, now, who is Tychicus? He doesn't pop up too much in scriptures. Well, here he says that Tychicus is a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. What a commendation. We don't know much about him, but we do know from Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Sorry, Paul, I just totally messed up. You good? Is that good? Um, Chapter 20, verse 4 That he accompanied Paul to at least Troas. We know he's from Asia, again from Acts chapter 20, and that he's been with Paul at least in Troas, which is a a city north of Ephesus, north of the current city Izmir in in modern day Turkey. In Colossians, Tychicus is also called a beloved brother and also called a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. He's also mentioned in 2 Timothy and in Titus. And from this, we can at least understand that he has played a crucial role in the gospel ministry and spreading the good news in the kingdom of Christ. We also get a little bit more intimate details here. He's a beloved brother of Paul. He's a reliable friend in the service of the Lord, as he's called faithful. And faithfulness in gospel ministry is vitally important. This is, we get a little window into gospel partnership at work between this relation, with this relationship between Paul and Tychicus. These Christians, Paul wants them to know how he is. He's a prisoner on account of the gospel, and Tychicus is to go there and he's got a mission, a mission of encouragement. It says right there, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that You may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Encouragement means giving someone support, giving someone confidence, and giving someone hope. It can be verbal. It can be nonverbal. It's a way to console and to help someone carry on when they're feeling discouraged or disheartened. And Paul sends him for this specific purpose to deliver the news of the state of Paul's soul and the other imprisoned Christians there with Paul. But he's not merely an information dispenser. Do you see that in the text? I don't want to just pass on information. I want to send those brothers so that you might be encouraged, confident, hope, hope, confidence with, with confidence, with hope. But why would they need encouragement? What's so discouraging about the, or potentially discouraging about the situation in Ephesus? Well, if you remember back to Acts chapter 19, we get a sense of the climate of Ephesus, the city. While there, Paul entered in the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly. He reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. He persuaded many of them about the kingdom of God and Christ. But he was not unopposed. There were some stubborn people there, as Acts nineteen says. Many of them continued in unbelief, and then they began to speak evil of the way. And then, in Acts chapter nineteen, you also have the sons of Sceva. In this fascinating account, parents, if you your kids everything in the Bible is boring, go to Acts chapter nineteen. You can read about the sons of Skeva. In this incident, this man possessed with an evil spirit jumps on seven itinerant Jewish exorcists. And he masters them, as the text says. He overpowers them, and they flee from the house naked and wounded. There's a lot of difficult things happening in Ephesus. The city had people that practiced magic arts. They crafted idols and shrines to the Greek goddess named Artemis. And feeling threatened by the spread of the gospel, the fear of losing their income, and the notoriety for being the city known for Artemis, the city became enraged. Even to the point where they dragged two disciples, Gaius and and, um, Aristarchus, into the center, city of the center, where the amphitheater is. You can see that today. And they nearly killed them. And they wanted to kill the apostle Paul as well. City full of those who slandered Christ. A city full of those who love money, who practice magic arts, and speak violence against Christians, and even if they had enough time, would kill Christians. That's why they need encouragement. That's the city that these new believers live in. So when Paul writes this letter, his aim is to encourage them. Yes, it's to give them rich theology about Christ and the mystery revealed. But knowledge is not meant just to stop in your head. It's supposed to undergird them and strengthen them and encourage them in this antagonistic world. Christians always need encouragement. And Paul is giving it through this faithful brother, Tychicus. The Christians need encouragement because, as children of light, we live in a world that celebrates the unfruitful works of darkness, as chapter 5 so says. As chapter 4 says, we need encouragement because while having a new self, we still can sometimes put on our old selves. Which belong to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Christians need encouragement because we wrestle against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And God in his design to display the gospel to the world has made it so that Christians need encouragement not just from God, but from other Christians. That's what Paul is getting at here as he's closing his letter. They need encouragement because we're so easily disheartened and discouraged in this world. One of the most basic applications here for us, Warnell Road, is to pray for and to write, if possible, those Christians who are imprisoned. There are Christians all across the world, in, in China, in uh, Nigeria, in a lot of the Stan countries, who are imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. One practice that, that we used to do uh, back in college is to go to Voice of the Martyrs website, and there you can even write letters to different Christians who are imprisoned. Not every country will obviously let you uh, send a letter and and will receive it and give it to the brother or sister in prison. But a lot of countries will. That's one thing you can do. Parents even consider doing this with their children. If you're in college, with your roommates, it's a good way to spend your time. Another obvious application for us, church, is to pray for and to care for those that we support. And not just to pray for them, and not just to support them financially, but to support them with encouragement. So as we, by the grace of God, continue to send out missionaries to this world, encourage them through emails, through letters, through Zoom calls. Encourage them. I'm so glad we get the opportunity in a month or two to have John Pentecost preach for us. He's, uh, we've been praying for him. Uh, for a couple of years now, he's a pastor of Smyrna International Church in um, modern-day Izmir, Turkey. And a lot of our students will actually be with him this summer as they go to Central Asia. He's going to come here. He's going to preach for us. And so we get a better understanding of how we can support him and encourage he and his wife and his daughters in their work. This is an essential part of a church, a church's health, to encourage others. Gospel encouragement is a normal thing for Christians. I, want, I wonder in your friendships right now, just take a moment and think about those that you're closest to. How much does a reminder of the gospel come up? How much are you reminding your friends with gospel truth that Christ has paid for that sin? Brothers and sisters, no longer walk in that way. Put on the new self. Stop walking your former ways. Do you frequently get out your Bible or maybe your phone, if your Bible's on your phone, in order to encourage a brother or sister in the gospel? Friends, let's not merely sit and listen to each other. Let's sit, let's be good listeners, and when appropriate, let's encourage one another. And friends, this doesn't always look like, in fact, I'd say most of the time, it shouldn't look like trying to reprove or call someone out for something or to find something they're not doing correctly that they can do better. Look for evidences of God's grace even now and and offer that to someone. Speak encouraging words to one another. I wonder if you've leaned into this church, if you felt encouraged by those you've been around. And if you can say that, you can maybe say somewhat, well, no, not really. My encouragement to you is, you be the encouraging person. You take the first steps of encouragement. Creating an atmosphere or a culture of encouragement is contagious. But friends, if we just stay in neutral, we will grow into pessimism. We'll become cynical. We'll be sarcastic in the wrong kind of way. Seek to be encouraging to one another. And if you're having trouble knowing what it's like to be an encouraging friend, find someone who generally is encouraging and spend time with them. That will be contagious and good for your soul. Let's be the kind of friends that encourage one another in the gospel, with the gospel of Christ. Well, secondly, we are to stand firm through encouragement from the gospel itself or from Jesus Look at verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul's here concluding his epistle in ways similar to other epistles, but there's a few eye catching differences. What's similar here is the blessing, which includes words like peace and love and faith and grace. Here he's speaking, I think, of the peace that all Christians should have now that their souls are no longer under the debt of sin, but have been paid for. And now there's no longer hostility between them and God. But now there's peace. And that peace is to overflow, that vertical peace is to overflow into their own hearts and into others. So they might be at peace with all men, especially those in the church. They're no longer children of wrath, but beloved children of God. And they have this peace with God. So you have these similarities like peace, words like love and grace and faith. But you have some differences and, and here's one helpful way to understand the meaning of a book is to especially the Pauline epistles is look the, you look at the very beginning and look at the very end and then you can compare them to other epistles and see if there are any differences and that's why this isn't merely just up oh, here's Paul saying goodbye but I think that there's really helpful information we can see what Paul is aiming at and trying to get us so we're going to look at three unique things about the ending of Ephesians. Firstly, it's in third person. Usually the end of a Pauline epistle is second person plural, you all. But these verses are written in third person. Now, this letter is often called a circular letter meaning that it's circulating not just to the not it's meant not just for the Ephesians, but also to those who are around Ephesus. One of the reasons for this is because there is a lack of specific names, with the exception being Tychicus. And so many think that Tychicus was meant to give this letter to the church at Ephesus and then to the churches in the areas around Ephesus. And what supports that is this third person ending. Uh, In the end, I don't think that matters very much. Um, This is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It's meant to get encouragement to the church at Ephesus and to all churches throughout all time. This benediction has gospel language, and it's meant to encourage all Christians. And it kind of gets at the cosmic scope of Ephesians, that God is doing something huge in your church, but in all churches in the heavenlies. That's probably why there's some of this less personal nature to the book of Ephesians. Well, secondly, a unique factor in this closing sentence is that he says love with faith. Notice that there? Love with faith. Why, why does he mention love with faith here? The first part of faith is knowing that we actually can't love as we ought to. You see, faith fuels love. So Paul, in another epistle, in Galatians 5, 6, says that faith works through love, and that counts for everything. Not circumcision, not your status. Those don't count for anything, but faith working through love. Righteousness is achieved by faith-fueled love of Christ. And faith energizes love. The problem is we're, we're all quite unloving people. Aren't we? In our relationships, in our, with our spouses, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our children, with our parents, none of us have been able to love each other completely or perfectly. We all fall short. And faith in the gospel, part of, of being a Christian is acknowledging how we fall short in love. And so Paul says love with faith because faith fuels your love. We give up so easily in love. We are so fickle in our love. We become judgmental. We quit, angry, irritable, rude. Friends, none of us has loved perfectly in our lives. None of us has loved perfectly this week. And I'm betting most of us this morning, even getting to church, haven't loved perfectly. Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, says... In overwhelming situations where you are all out of human love, you lean upon God because you can't bear the weight of love. So faith is not a mountain to climb, but a, a valley to fall into. So we don't work our ways up and try to muster all this faith in our own strength. No, we first acknowledge, Lord, we can't love as we ought to. We can't love as we want to. Friends, it's often the first, time, the first step in faith. And so Paul says love with faith here. But he also isn't nearly kicking them in the dirt saying, oh, you are pathetic in your love and you don't have any love. No, he actually encourages them a lot in their faith. So he. He says in Ephesians 1, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. There he is again, pairing faith with love. Uh, He says this also in Ephesians 4. He says that we are to speak the truth in love. We are to be built up in love. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us. Husbands, how are you to love your wives as Christ loved the church? Friends, who is sufficient for this kind of love? No one is apart from Christ. We love others because he first loved us. We shine like stars in the universe. We make God glorious in the church as we love one another. Christians are to love one another, and that's impossible to do without faith in Christ. And faith in Christ perseveres, corrects, refines, strengthens so that we can keep on loving when we don't feel like loving. See, we can have a lot of gifts. We can have amazing intellect. We can be charming. We can be hard workers. We can be great servants. Charismatic teachers, dynamic leaders. We can have a really pleasant demeanor. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 13, we can even speak in angelic tongues and other languages. We can even be martyrs for Jesus. But if we don't have love, what are we? A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, you know? That's all we are right there. That's what Paul says, except worse sound than that. We can be so strong and impressive in the eyes of the world, but without love, we're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Without love fueled by faith, we detract from God's glory rather than have His glory shine through us, that we would be. A visible display to the world of the gospel of Christ. That's why I think he says love with faith here. Faith in Christ, which fuels our love. How do we forgive one another? Just look at Ephesians 4. 432, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just stop there. Okay, be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive one another. Okay, how do I do that? Where do I go for my example? Where do I go for the fuel? Here it is. As God in Christ forgave you. That's how you do it. Husbands, how do you love your wives? As Christ loved the church. How do we defeat Satan? We put on Christ, his armor. Love with faith preserves, sustains, upholds the Christian and the Christian church. Friends, where is your faith lacking this morning? A good place to look at that is where has your love grown cold? Who are you tired of loving? If you're tired of loving, if your love is waning and not persevering, don't just say, I need to love someone. Don't just cut off that person. Have more faith in Christ and see what happens to that relationship. And then you will be able to love that person and think less about yourself and more about how you can serve and care for that person. This is impossible to do. On your own strength. It will not work. But Christ fuels that. And sustains that. The third unique aspect of this ending here. And how Paul's meaning to give us the gospel to sustain us. Is there's a unique emphasis on love. There's something unique about this love. And I find this fascinating. Look at verse 24. And let's read it slowly and carefully. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. If you look at the endings of the other epistles, he's not focusing on your love for Jesus. He's focusing on Jesus' love for you or God's power for you or God's love for you or his grace for you. But the very last verse says... Grace be with all who love the Lord, Jesus with love incorruptible. He's emphasizing of all things our love for Jesus. What is that? Who loves Jesus incorruptibly? Who has this kind of grace that loves the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible? Is this a special set of Christians? Like, do some Christians have undying love for Jesus? A love that does not decay while others kind of have this love where they kind of live on the fence. Where one day they love Jesus a lot and the other days they don't. Well, of course he's not saying that. Read the rest of the book to figure that out. Read all of the scripture to figure out that it is not our love that sustains us, but it's whose love? is his love for us. Then why is he doing this? Well, he's already said that God is the one who is rich in mercy. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, It's his great love with, with, with which he loved us that we are made alive together with Christ. By his grace, we've been saved. By his love, he predestined us. He's already said that we are in, in Ephesians 3, that we are to have Christ dwell in our hearts. That through faith, we might be rooted and grounded in love. Again, whose love is it? It's not our love, it's Christ's love. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why didn't you end it there, Paul? Why did he say, praise be to God. And may you know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Interesting, isn't it? Well, look back to to verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Another interesting nugget. Look at verse 1, chapter 1. Paul and the apostles of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, nothing eye-catching there. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Another reminder of something about us and our devotion To Jesus rather than his devotion to us. Now, again, you can read all of chapter one and you can see it's not about you. (laughs) It's about his love for you from before the foundations of the world. He predestined you, he loved you, he adopted you, he ransomed you, he redeemed you. It's all about him. Yet, the book ends, the beginning and the end, the top, the tail. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus and May grace be with those who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Here's where it's getting at. And this is is getting back to the main point of Ephesians. See, our love for one another, our love for one another, displays the glories of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know already that our love for one another is not rooted in us, but we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Chapter three talks about that. But here, this manifestation of god 's glory that all nations might praise him, bow down to him, devote their whole lives to him it 's seen it's tasted it's experienced as Christians love one another. How does the world know? That Christ is glorious and loving? What does Jesus say? They will know you're my disciples by what? Your love for me? Well, that is true. But he actually doesn't say that. He says, by your love for one another. They will watch you. They will see how you interact. And they will say, that's unique. That's different. What's going on there? And the Christians will proclaim the gospel. Our love for Christ displays the mystery of the gospel of Christ. Our love for Christ is able to overcome any worldly, any fleshly, any satanic desire. And yes, of course, it's rooted in his love for us. But in this unique ending, this is what I think Paul is getting at here in this text. If the mystery of the gospel is to be proclaimed to the cosmos to the unseen principalities in this world and to the watching world, they're going to see it and experience it. They're going to taste it by our love for one another. Our enduring love, our persevering love, our kind, our overlooking offense love for one another. The world will see that and say, huh, all my life, I've done this quid pro quo thing with relationships where if you do me wrong once, all right, maybe I'll look over that. But you do me wrong twice. No, no, no. We're done. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Forgive one another. He says in chapter 4, as God has forgiven you in Christ. The Lord Jesus sustains us. It is Implicit in this last verse. And that's why it's good to have the whole of a book in mind when you're preaching. It's implicit that we can't love one another well at all if we don't stand on the love of Christ. Our love for Christ displays the mystery of the gospel to the world that is in so much need of knowing pure love. See, your love for one another is only enough Because of his love for you. And God's love for us is enough. In fact, it's beyond what we could ask for or dream of. And our job as Christians is to demonstrate that truth. That Jesus has won. He is victorious. He is reigning. Now come, join me. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And that's, if you're not a Christian here, that's what makes sense of all this is that he first loved us, and now we are growing in our love for one another and in our love for Jesus. We were helpless, we were children of wrath, we disobeyed God, though he is ruler and king over all. And ever since the fall of man, humans have been raging against God, rebelling against his purposes. Even in the West, even in countries founded on biblical principles, or Judeo-Christian values. We still are at enmity between God. And God in His kindness has sent us Christ. Christ has died. He rose from the dead, showing He has power over life and death. And now He reigns and we wait for Him to come back. And if you are not yet a Christian here, let me encourage you to read the Scriptures. Look for Christ's love for you in the Scriptures. And then give your life to Him. friends just some encouragement to consider coming a little bit earlier next Sunday to the biblical theology class led by Jeff and Keenan so that you can better know your bible and therefore see the love of god for you in the scriptures when you pray pour out your hearts to god for it is his, he knows the state of your heart he knows your embarrassing thoughts he knows your feelings Learn how to lament, read the psalms, and pray much like the psalmists. Study God's word. If you're feeling unloved, or if you're feeling that your love is not enough, like maybe that your love is kind of fading toward Jesus, don't root your love or prove it in your works. Consider the cross of Christ. Where his love is poured out for sinners like you and me. If you're feeling condemned, know that you are accepted and you are paid for by the love of Christ. Meditate on his love for you when you're feeling like your love is slowing down. But also know that if you've been saved by Christ, you have this undying, incorruptible love. Because he first loved you. Friends, as we conclude here, encouragement sustains weary Christians to stand firm. And if we're in a battle constantly and we're not standing firm in the gospel, guess what? We're all weary. Encouragement sustains weary saints to stand firm and continue to display the mystery of the gospel to the world. The world is always, in a sense, on the brink of war. If it's not Russia, now it's Iran tomorrow, or China, or the U.S., or drug lords, or traffickers, or terrorists. This is the world we live in, and it can be disheartening. The world is looking for encouragement. And God says, I want to display my love for the world through the local church. And the good news is that we are loved. And we are loved in an incomprehensible way. We will never fully understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love because Christ is eternal. But we have an eternity to sit and to understand his love for us. Won't that be a beautiful, wonderful day where we'll be with him forever? Our love for one another showcases to the watching world that Christ is glorious and lovely. And through that testimony, God gets glory and the mystery is beheld. Just take a few moments before I close in prayer and just consider, just dwell on the love of Christ for you. And then I'll close this some prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your love for us is undying. It's incorruptible, and we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So we cannot be unloved by you, and nor can our love grow completely cold and cut off from you. So for those of us who are trying to earn your favor, to earn your respect and your, and your care, Oh, Lord, help us to stop doing that and help us to know that we are loved and cared for by you. Help us to further comprehend the length, the breadth, the height, the width of the love that you have for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.